Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out Toronto Today, the podcast version for this day, the final day of February. Thank goodness. Of uh, 2022. Uh, we have a lot on the show today. We will um, no doubt talk about Russia and Ukraine, a rather remarkable set of circumstances. And uh, beyond the obvious in that Ukraine is fighting back and fighting hard, we have to talk about how Russia pivots on this strategy now. Max Bergman is a senior fellow for Europe and Russia for AmericanProgress.org, uh, and he takes the time to join us on our show. Uh, also, um, it was working in the State Department for six, seven years of the Obama administration. So we've got thoughts on some retrospective challenges that the United States faced, but Coverage we're all watching right now is the same coverage he's watching. Erica Eiffel will join us as well. Dr. Eric Cam from X University. And uh, as well, more thoughts on uh, exactly where we're going with Russia and Ukraine. It's all coming up. We hope you do enjoy it. And I uh, hope you had a great weekend. Thanks very much for finding us. Toronto Today begins now. Let's start here with Ukraine. Here's what we know is that there are talks going on right now, but I'm awfully suspicious of talking in this scenario. Hi, you invaded my country. You started killing my residents, and now you want to talk to me four days. Talk? Really? This is not unlike uh, when, you know, Ray Liotta drops, uh, you know, stands up Lorraine Bracco, and she's like, you want to talk to me after what you did? But in this case, um, Ukraine probably has some definitive interest in doing so. Why? Nobody wants a war. The Ukrainians don't want to defend their own property with rifles and, uh, and, and you know, near as I can tell, borderline muskets. They've got numbers. And I said it out of the gate this morning, Russia has vastly underestimated the strength of the Ukrainian people and vastly overestimated how their forces would advance unopposed, seize every city. Kiev's population would just await further instructions uh, from their Russian overlords, okay? And that wasn't out of the realm of possibility when all this started on Wednesday night. It's not, because it's happened before. But there are a lot of extraordinary moments that we've seen the last five days or so. In fact, none less extraordinary than President Zelensky, more on him in a second, but convincing the EU to impose greater sanctions. They were going into this kind of, oh, yeah, we can give a, a, a hand here, but also thoughts and prayers. Zelensky's like, eh, thoughts and prayers aren't going to get this done. You need to help us in a way that you haven't had to help any other country and didn't help any other country going through what we're going through. So reading this from the Washington Post last night, uh, it's documented from Michael Weiss, then Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky dialed into the meeting via teleconference with a bracing appeal that left some of the world-weary politicians with watery eyes. In just five minutes, Zelensky, speaking from the battlefield of Kiev, pleaded with European leaders for an honest assessment of his country's ambition to join the European Union and for genuine help in its fight with the Russian invaders. Ukraine needed its neighbors to step up with food, ammunition, fuel, sanctions, all of it. It was extremely, extremely emotional, said a European official briefed on the call. He was essentially saying, look, we are here dying for European ideals. And he meant it literally. Before ending the video call, Zelensky told the gathering matter-of-factly that it might be the last time they saw him alive, according to a senior European official who was present. Okay, You might, you might have seen the big uh, quote for him on the weekend is, uh, in essence, I don't need a ride. Like America was offering to basically pull Zelensky and his staff out of Ukraine for his own safety. 
And he's like, you know, we need support. I don't need a ride. Okay. That's not what's happening here. And there's, it's become so obvious that the world has changed in the last five. The whole world has changed in the last five days. Kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. I'm so excited. But the idea for Vladimir Putin, the idea that, that, you know, Ukrainians would somehow embrace him, understand that, that they were meant to be part of, of, of a Russia again, that is 30 years old. Um, he didn't count on. He didn't count on it one bit. And it's rather remarkable all that's transpired here. Uh, and this is Gary Kasparov, who we played uh, a clip on, the former uh, Grandmaster chess champion. And he makes note of the fact, he made note of the fact yesterday on CNBC with Shepard Smith, made note of the fact that even he's surprised by the pushback. So I'm very proud to see that thousands and thousands of people uh, made to the streets in Russia yesterday and, 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 these, and today. And it demonstrates that uh, Kremlin propaganda about massive support for this uh, criminal war in Ukraine has widespread support among Russian population. It's absolute lie, uh, and and we could see that uh, ordinary Russians, uh, apolitical Russians, they are protesting. They are doing that now. It's really easy to feel conflicted about sanctions, and I do. Okay, people are super passionate about yeah, sanction them here, hit them hard here. It's still going to impoverish ordinary Russians. We do understand this, right? Okay. Uh, It is going to be horrific to recover from this economically uh, for people that are in Russia. And there are Russians trying to get out of Russia right now. Kasparov goes on to make the point that Putin has had an obsession with Ukraine for years now. Ukraine was Putin's obsession for years. So he never believed Ukraine was an independent state. And he said it many times. He kept repeating it. And Russian propaganda over the last few years after annexation of Crimea, 24-7 had been saying that Ukraine was not a real state. And the time would come when Russia would, uh, Russia will, will um, acquire it and take it what, what it belonged to Russia. So there are no secrets. So uh, I'm, I'm shocked that you know, people are still surprised. Oh, Putin is attacking Ukraine from three directions. Putin has been amassing troops for months. He even brought uh, Russian warships from the Pacific. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Again, um, I wonder if history will judge that U.S. offer to evacuate Zelensky rather harshly. Uh, He wants weapons, not a ride. That was the quote. Um, And Zelensky said, I'm staying in Kiev with my entire cabinet and we're leading the fight. That's the stuff out of movies. Sometimes you say, well, it's not a movie because, again, people are going to suffer real sanctions here, real hardships. You see it in these stories uh, with, you know, Ukrainians on the subway platform and it's men uh, having to stay behind or get their wives, girlfriends, children to safety. Men 18 to 60 forbidden to leave the country. Pick up a gun. We've got lots of them and defend your country. They're not asking. They're not asking Ukrainian men. Uh, to do that. That speaks volumes in its own self. But but just Zelensky doing that has to play a role in inspiring Ukrainian soldiers. How could it not? How could it not? And it's really remarkable to think about war itself. I, it, it's something I never saw myself doing. Never thought I'd have to. Never had the desire to. And those who have signed up and been veterans, um, you know, many listen to the show. You have my undying undying and forever eternal respect and gratitude doesn't matter what age it doesn't matter what conflict it doesn't matter what decade but it's really strange 
that I was speaking to somebody who went to Afghanistan uh, over the weekend. I only know two people that went to Afghanistan, but I had a long text conversation with one. And he pointed out to me, he said, until the, until you get into it, you don't know how you're going to react to combat. And many people, you don't necessarily, even if you're a Russian soldier, you haven't signed up to know that you're doing this. And you've seen some of the video, which, again, it's really it's really tricky to figure out what's what. But many of the Russians have not reacted well to this. Sometimes, and it's like sports, it's not unlike sports. How bad do you want it? Well, the Ukrainians want to defend their homes and their life and their country and that of their neighbors and that of their friends and that of their wives and children a lot more than the Russian soldiers probably want it. Does that factor into everything? No. Um, If the Russians have more artillery, eventually you'll wear ordinary citizens down. But this is a rather remarkable development, isn't it, that the Ukrainian army didn't run away and didn't surrender. Let me flip this here and play you some uh, Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky said this, um, the world of sport has reacted in a way that's rather remarkable. It's still not enough. But does the IIHF say something today about the world championships coming up in the spring, the world juniors, which Canada is supposed to do, do or basically do a redo of. They were trying to have it in Edmonton uh, over Christmas time and COVID shut the tournament down. I could get into that, but uh, but the idea of Wayne Gretzky, and remember, he's saying this on an American network, on a rights holder, in a league with a lot of star Russian players, and he's saying, we've got to kick the Russians out. We can't be playing them internationally right now. If we're going to send hockey players home, we should send everybody home, right? It's not just hockey players. There's a lot of other yep. people here who are making a living. But one of the things, I, I was so glad to see the Polish soccer team step up and say we're not going to play against them and i think international hockey should say we're not going to let them play in the world junior hockey tournament i think we got as canadians take that stance since the games the games are going to be played in edmonton yeah there's a lot of people saying where is hockey canada here where is the ihf why are other federations stepping up and saying not only do we not want them there not only do we not want them there we don't want to play them uh, period. Let me do a quick pivot here. I've got a couple minutes, so I want to do it. Uh, SNL had a sketch on the weekend. John Mulaney came back and hosted. He's been through a lot in the last two years, but he's part of this sketch right now. And the best way I can put it is uh, this is like a like a three couples out for dinner starting to talk about COVID in a way that we kind of weren't allowed to a few months ago. This was a massive breakthrough that Saturday Night Live is parroting parodying the kind of conversations that we're all starting to have that six months ago would have been taboo. And they document that. Here's just some of that sketch. You know, that reminds me of this article I read. Oh, honey, with... no one wants to hear about that. <laughs> well, it was in Bloomberg, and I thought it was interesting. What, uh, what article? Well, it Honey. Was... <laughs> it was just saying how mass mandates had, I don't know, little to no effect. On COVID. (laughs) Sorry, it's not like I'm anti-mask or anything. I just sometimes wonder if any of the things we did actually helped. Gina. No, no, no. We can talk about this incredibly complicated and emotional topic. Yes, yes, of course. I will start. Mm. Because, um, for instance, while I am... So personally relieved that I'm vaccinated. Careful. I I sometimes wonder if if other people who are hesitant 
Sometimes we are a little overzealous when we condemn. Oh, no. I just think that if people are actually losing their jobs. Oh, no. Careful, girl. Look, vaccines save lives. Fact. Okay, they stop the hospitals from being overrun. Fact. Where are you up to? But did I have to dump my oldest friend just because he didn't get a booster? <laughs> it went on a few minutes longer. You can imagine. Uh, quality stuff. And by the way, by the way, that's every COVID conversation right now. That's every COVID conversation among three couples sitting around having dinner or sitting in somebody's living room right now. You're carefully hedging. You're extraordinary, extraordinarily apologetic. And you're questioning all of it. You're questioning all of it. Are the experts a bunch of hacks or do masks work or is the truth somewhere in the middle? It's incredible. It's incredible. And uh, I know there's people hearing this going, uh, yeah, that sketch, it's about eight to 10 months too late. And I wouldn't 100% disagree. Max Bergman, in a second, uh, senior fellow for Europe and Russia from American Progress. Let me play you something from the show Friday. It's, it's, it's not really old audio because it's more prescient now than ever. We talked to Bill Browder, who uh, basically had a, a death warrant put on him from Vladimir Putin, worked in Russia for a bunch of years. Uh, Browder's lawyer was murdered by Vladimir Putin. That's been proven, by the way, by an international tribunal court. Here's how he says Vladimir Putin leaves office. It's not it's not walking left foot and then right foot and then left foot and then right foot. Here's what he said on Friday's show. There's only one way Vladimir Putin can leave. To paraphrase you last time out, you, you kind of said this isn't somebody that can just pack his suitcase full of money and like a supervillain in a movie uh, retire to a beach somewhere or a mountain. Someone will find him. So he's made too many enemies. He needs the protection of the state and the protection of the military. Do I do I have that as, as accurate as you described it last time? The only way he's going to leave the presidency um, is on a stretcher, either as an old age, old man, you know, who dies in his sleep or somebody who gets killed in an overthrow. He's not going to go down willingly and on, on, in, in any circumstances. So it's not ending gracefully uh, per Bill Browder. Max Bergman, senior fellow for Europe and Russia. He spent seven years in the U.S. State Department, most of those through the Obama years, uh, joins me now on Toronto Today. Uh, this has been madness. There's been nothing like this in the news cycle, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Weigh in for our audience. You know Russia so well. Weigh in for our audience what you've seen and how things just seem to keep changing every hour. No, it's been utterly bewildering. I mean, just today, uh, in some ways, the world changed. Uh, in in Europe, for instance, the response. Uh, it's you know, I woke up this morning with a, a, a text from a friend in Europe who said the world just changed. Look what Schultz just said, the Chancellor of Germany, and suddenly Germany uh, literally has doubled its defense budget. Germany always, you know, has a pa- sort of a pacifist legacy. Their defense budget is well below the two percent. That NATO countries are supposed to spend, and they're uh, going to spend 100 billion on defense in addition this year, which is double their defense budget. It's just an absolute astonishing shift that has happened uh, just in the last few days. So it, it just shows how much 
uh, you know, an action that uh, is really kind of incredibly reckless has, I think, galvanized the world, has led to just a massive global response. Um, and has, it's going to change. It's going to change things. History is going to look back at the, this week and be like, this is a pivotal moment in, in, in how world history went. And we don't exactly know where things will go, but we know it's, it's going to be different than what it was before. Do you see people having pushed governments into doing that over, over a two, three day span? Did they start to feel the squeeze and, and, and the tension of their, of their, you know, of their independent electorates, individual electorates, I should say, galvanizing together and, and looking at their government going, you're not just going to stand there and, you know, you know, tut tut and, and wave your, you know, wave your finger and, and put up just a couple meaningless sanctions. You got to do more than that. It really felt like a groundswell from, from populations, especially in Europe, obviously. Yeah, no, I think, I think in the U S case, they, the, the white house and the Biden administration had this pretty gamed out because uh, they had looked at the Intel back in November and December and said, this is, this is going to happen. And, you know, I think now if everyone sort of remembers back a few weeks ago and everyone was accusing the United States of sort of being alarmist, of hyping the threat. And so what that meant is the U.S. had really gamed out what the plan was. Now, part of the challenge of what the plan of what it was going to do. But on the European side, you know, the U.S. was trying to have these talks with the Europeans about what the what we would do if Russia invaded. And it's like having a conversation about hypothetically what you would do in this crazy situation. And I think the Europeans were willing to have that conversation and think about it. But then that, when it happened, I think you see the utter shock that has happened, not just in Europe, but in the United States, but around the world, uh, in Canada as well. And the response has really stiffened the spine, I think, of, of political leaders to the point where I think the response in Europe and in other countries uh, you know, has been in some ways just as strong or stronger than, than uh, where the United States has been. So I, I, I think you, you see the kind of global reaction has really pushed leaders uh, and, and also not just governments, but organizations uh, like FIFA and others to take stronger action. I think that's only going, going to, to uh, get stronger. Max Bergman's kind enough to join us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto uh, with Greg Brady. When I think about where uh, where it's gone from January, you write your piece in January. And it, like I said, it, it's very salient, prescient. It it kind of maps a lot of things out, some of which have happened already. You sure planned it out longer than, you know, the five or six days that we're talking about since um, since Russia went in. At the same time, you know, we have had we have seen posturing before and threats and and quote unquote war games. We've seen North Korea fire more missiles into the sky. It feels like in the last 20 years uh, than we can count. What what made you pretty sure in late January that this was going to transpire? Well, I think it was, you know, when you see Russia start to move, uh, you know, 70, roughly 70 percent of its conventional combat forces and this meet what, you know, that's a logistical operation, right? They move troops that were in the far east of the country in the Pacific from Vladivostok over to uh, to Ukraine to sort of around the border. Uh, and when you start seeing that and it's, you know, it's cold and they're intense. Uh, and then you start seeing tank crews try to uh, bolt on cages on top of their uh, gun turrets to sort of protect them from missile fire. That, you know, that's them getting ready for war. And so I think it was pretty clear back in, in January. The, the other tripwire for me 
was when the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, um, who negotiated the Iran deal, went to Geneva and met with her, her Russian counterpart, Sergei Ryabkov. And that was for kind of the talks, the negotiations that, you know, if Putin was just moving forces to get leverage to then have a long-term dip diplomatic talk over things like missile systems and military exercises, sort of very Cold War style uh, conversation, then that was going to be the venue that that was going to launch. And the Russians showed up and they had nothing. We were willing to, the U.S. was willing to talk about all sorts of things because we don't want this conflict. We want stability. Uh, and they just didn't show up with anything. And that was a tell. Because if you're moving forces and then you're, you know, and it's, and it's not for diplomatic leverage because you walk away from diplomatic talks, then what, are they, what is it about? You know, invading. So I think this was a, really a pre-plan. This has been in the works for, for months um, and Putin had to made the decision to go not on on in February, but but I think uh, well into 2021. Do we have do we have it all right? I mean, you you and I would be uh, what I would call Cold War kids, right? We we grow up in the 70s and 80s, and the biggest threat to our existence is probably you know if if there's a conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, and uh, if it gets so tense, uh, Central America obviously was a breeding ground for that. But if it gets so tense that someone happens to press uh, to use a nuclear option, but that was all I, that was all we we stressed about in a in a Putin universe. And you were in the State Department for a lot of those years. Do we have once the Soviet Union crumbled, did the relationship start to get warmer? We had eight years of George W. Bush with Putin. We had eight years of Barack Obama with Putin. Do do, do we in, in North America have it misunderstood that that it got to be a warmer relationship or, or was it always at arm's length? Um, one of of suspicion and concern and just just hopefully he doesn't do anything that is too dramatic and, and that forces yeah. our hand here. No, so I, I think the way to think about it is when the Soviet Union collapsed and Boris Yeltsin became president and it became the Russian Federation, not the Soviet Union, that there was this period during the 90s where the view was Russia was going to be part of Europe. It was going to be part of the West. They, the G7 became the G8. Uh, and there was this whole effort to, to establish a, a good relationship. Um, but then when Vladimir Putin became president, he became president on January 1st uh, at midnight on January 1st, 2000. What he really represents is kind of the restoration of the, the kind of Soviet intelligence service, the, the kind of hardliners of the Soviet period that were super focused on Russia being a big geopolitical power and, restor and restoring the power of the Russian state. And that's when uh, the relationship really starts to shift. You know, Bush tried, uh, George W. Bush looked into Putin's soul in that first famous summit right. uh, that he had. Uh, but really, what ha you start to just to see the relationship shift, and some of it, you know, the U.S. didn't take Russian concerns seriously, and that's there's some case there. But really, Putin sees the United States just like the Soviet Union saw the United States as the main enemy, uh, and this is sort of, and he is desperately afraid of democratic uprisings, and that's what happened in Ukraine, and he sees Ukraine as part of kind of the Soviet sphere, the Russian Empire, or the the former Russian Empire, so. This has sort of just been on a collision course uh, where Putin has uh, wanted to reclaim his Soviet space. And we are, you know, the United States and Europe looking to make Europe and NATO strong and, and more democratic. And that was just going to run into each other. I don't ne necessarily know if it was inevitable, but then you have things like the Ukraine revolution in 2014, which then sort of creates this clash uh, uh, eight years later that we're seeing today. 
Max Bergman's our uh, our guest, senior fellow at American Progress. His uh, main focuses of uh, expertise are Europe, Russia, U.S. security cooperation. I'd also I'm thinking as you say that too we didn't have the European Union and you've you you went to school in uh, in in Europe I, I've been lucky enough to go to Europe uh, a, a few times mostly to watch soccer but still I'm there and and I it, it's stronger it's stronger in the 21st century than it ever was for any of those um, those Soviet bloc decades has that factored into things because previously you couldn't get all these countries England France Germany um, all the Scandinavian nations they all had different agendas they all had different perspectives and outside of the UK pulling out post-Brexit, um, there's a lot more of a united front versus Putin than there ever would have been to the Soviet Union. Yeah. And we sort of think that Europe is sort of this old place where, you know, these old countries, but actually Europe is very new. You know, the U.S. and Canada are actually now kind of old. Like we have old uh, old governments and old systems, but the European Union is 20, 1993. So it's nearly, nearly 30 years old. But so now there's a generation of Europeans that have grown up as dual citizens. They're citizens of their whatever country they're from in Europe and their European Union citizens. And we have to remember one of the things that kicked off the protests in Ukraine was that Ukraine in 2013 had a choice if they were going to sign up for an economic arrangement with the EU or with Russia and Moscow. And the leadership of Ukraine decided to go with Russia. That kicked off a whole bunch of protests because young people in Ukraine want to be part of the European Union, not even just young people, the Ukrainian society. Uh, and so the EU, I think, is, is a new, important political organization. What we've seen in the last week is the EU really emerging uh, as both a strong sort of global actor, taking really strong steps on sanctions, but then also, as I mentioned, uh, strong military steps. So um, I, I think the EU is like sort of has been awoken by this uh, and is a pivotal factor in 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 this in this whole affair where it is Europe re, uh, is a symbol for democracy for economic freedom uh and that's something that is really challenging to the to the regime in 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 the Kremlin Max last one for you I, I mentioned on America's pro, uh, AmericanProgress.org, uh you you lay out nine steps and you did this in mid to late January I'm gonna read you back for the audience to hear too three of your first four. Target and uproot, uh, uproot oligarch wealth and influence. Wage a continuous economic sanctions campaign against Russia. Press Europe to engage in a wartime-like mobilization to decarbonize and reduce its dependence on Russian gas. The first two I mentioned are definitely happening. And even with what Germany did, which you referenced, that third one is happening. Um, that's <laughs> you laid these out as things that needed to happen here, and uh, and and the playbook is is getting adapted by many European countries here. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the decarbonization part was, is one where I think we're going to see even more action from the EU where, you know, that is, if you want to sort of put an economic squeeze on, on Russia, I think roughly 50% of their exports are fossil fuels. So if you in Europe right now gets 40% of their natural gas uh, from Russia. So this is an, an area where, you know, Europe for their own energy security needs to uh, get off Russian gas. I think we're going to see a big investment there. So there's, and this is, I think, you know, in crises are never good. You never want them. But when they occur, they create opportunities for societies to really move and take bold action. And I think that's what we're seeing in Europe, in the US, and Canada, and other places. Uh, and so hopefully this leads to a stronger uh, NATO alliance, a stronger transatlantic relationship, a stronger Europe. Um, and, and hopefully uh, this also. Uh, you know, all the assistance going to Ukraine pays dividends and they're able to 
to, to salvage the situation and, and push back uh, Russia's invasion. It's historic times. It's unbelievable times. Max, thank you so much for letting us catch up with you uh, here in Toronto. Your expertise, very, very welcome this morning. Thanks so much. Clearly, I need to watch more TV and movies and watch. I watched that Ottawa show two weekends ago. I watched that Ukraine show on the weekend. I just got to lose myself in some stuff. I'm very happy to have our next guest on. We missed her last week, uh, but Erica Eiffel, Hill Times columnist, uh, joins us. There were some great speeches last night, and you must have saw Scandal, right? You'd be like, did you watch the show Scandal? I, yeah, I did. It was great. I loved it at the time. I don't know how well it would age, though. Hmm. Yeah. That's the only thing. I'm like, uh, scandal. A lot, uh, you know? A lot of stuff so hasn't, a I, lot of stuff doesn't age well. Like, there's nothing from like 1986 that ages well. aged well because <laughs> I feel the same way about my job. I really, I felt that. It hit me. It hit my soul because, like, I feel exactly the same way. How like, do you, how do you feel? Tell, tell me how you feel. I just feel like I'm really blessed to be able to to sit here and, like, wax poetic about stuff I would, I would consume anyway. And, you know, that people actually, there are people out there who actually listen to my thoughts and, like, agree with them. Like, it's more, it's less agree and more like, yeah, you know, I value what you have to say. And that's just one of the most incredible things that you can get from work. And I know it's rare. <laughs> It's you're, not that common. You're so right, right? We go to school, and when you want to say something, you raise your hand, and you're just like, yeah. I just want to be heard. I want the teacher yes. to respect that I have an opinion. I won't always be right. My opinion will, will evolve over time. But exactly. you just crystallized it, and he crystallized it. The idea, I, I don't think that'll hit me until like like decades from now when I'm in an old folks home that people actually <laughs> wanted to hear my opinion about stuff, right? Like that's yeah. You're right. You're right. It's true. And it's like, and you get, and people actually pay you for it now. Like, I'm like, people are paying me for my opinion. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I'm like, this is awesome. It does. It. Yeah. She's, uh, by the way, Eric Eiffel, co-host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. And we want you to listen to that on a regular basis and uh, check her out at the Hill Times. You wrote about uh, the Hill Times and, and it wasn't, I know you've referenced it as, I read it and I, you reference it as an I told you so column. But I'm not. But but I I think there's some frankness and there's some. To be honest, I felt some some sadness. You're an Ottawa resident, and you're like it's. Sometimes you're right about something, and you're like, I wish I wasn't. You you yeah. wish it didn't come to what it came to three or four weekends ago in Ottawa, and then nope. the and then the inactivity of every level of government to to yeah. figure out what was happening and how to solve it. And this is the same government that wants to trust that wants me to trust them on Ukraine. And I'm like, mm, I'm kind of out of institutional faith right now. I, I'm, I, I don't have faith in institutional leadership, and nor should I. I would be a fool to. You know? And I think a lot of people feel that way. I think a lot of people feel let down by leadership. I mean, look at this whole pandemic. It's been a whole failure of leadership. Um, and we're going from crisis to crisis to crisis, and with no end in sight. Like, I literally just want summer to come at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm thrilled it's, uh, that we're talking on the last day of February today because it gets us a month closer uh, yeah, to, to what exactly. summer will be. And yet, you know, we've been excited to, that, oh, it's spring now. Oh, here's Justin Trudeau's one dose summer. I'm like, that yeah. sounds like a terrible, <laughs> that sounds like a terrible Cinemax movie that I, that would be, you know, on you at 1030 like? at night. 
It sounds like an STD. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for some of our listeners, it might have been uh, 10, 15 years ago. It could... (laughs) <laughs> Hopefully it's not. Yeah, it's 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 not some Hopefully foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it could. And yet we get and then we get the rug pulled from out from under us, um, yeah. w- w- whichever way it goes. Tell tell our listeners how Ottawa has been in the last. My gosh, if we were talking on the Monday, we still weren't yeah. sure everything was over. There still were people getting arrested. There still oh. were trucks in the downtown core. How are things seven days later there? Well, I am literally I'm downtown right now. Mm-hmm. In front of the CBC building. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's pretty quiet here. It's back to boring Ottawa. I am happy for boring Ottawa. I've never been so happy for boring the city where fun left, the city that fun left behind Ottawa. Honestly, it, it looks like it looks pretty quote unquote normal again. So it's, it's calm. It's quiet there. I haven't really a lot of police presence this morning but I also took the train and wasn't walking downtown so but um, I, I have to say like it's good to take a breath and exhale because mm-hmm. honestly I I don't know what was going to happen and nobody knew and then there was this talk that they might come back like last weekend and I guess there were some demonstrations, but it didn't really amount to much. Because all these dudes drove off, right? They drove off to some camp way outside the city, and you're like, yeah. what are they planning there? There's still exactly. tents there and, and, uh, and, and you know, gas-powered generators and hot dogs yeah. and beer. And what's, what's like, it, I remember going to bed the night of January 6th thinking that about D.C. I'm like, why won't they just come back and try again tomorrow, right? Like, I, I, there yeah. was no guarantee that they wouldn't back on January 7, 2021. And there's no guarantee for Canada Day, and there's no guarantee. Yeah. And I think that's that's what happens is that your whole sense of calm, your whole sense of sort of this this continuity of calm has been ruptured. And so, you know, every major holiday or every it doesn't even have to be a holiday, um, but every sort of major event, you're sort sort of thinking, well, are these people coming back? Especially considering, you're right, they're still on the outskirts of Ottawa in like that Bank Leak Hill and places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you drink bows, you know where that is, right? So, um, so right now, like, I'm, it's, again, it's really clear. Bank Street is clear. Mm-hmm. I don't really see the police. I see more of a police presence kind of more in the outskirts of downtown. When I was here last week, there was still the... Um, the the checkpoints, the police checkpoints, but I'm not sure if they're still here. But you can drive in front of the CBC without someone stopping your car and going, exactly. "Where are you going?" If yeah. if you were driving a car today, right? You could you yeah. you'd be fine with that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Where yeah. where will it go with um? Boy, you you and I have had many conversations about um, policing in general, and I can only imagine oh. for Ottawa residents. <laughs> Of all shapes, sizes, creeds, colors, how they feel um, about their former police chief and their ele- their level of trust and uh, respect for what ended up happening. They're just there wasn't enforcement of actual laws for about three and a half weeks until cops started coming from all over the place. And they finally said, yeah. now we're now we're making a move here. Now we're doing probably what every Ottawa resident feels should have been done days or weeks earlier. 
Well, I fully believe had the province stepped in and done their job, um, like they're, they are responsible for a lot of the policing that could have been done. That I, I think if the province has stepped in, we wouldn't need the emergencies act. Not just, I'm not convinced we needed the emergencies act, mm-hmm. but there would not have been an argument for it. And we wouldn't have these new laws. So I, part of my blame goes to Doug Ford, who didn't step up as usual, as he didn't step up for the pandemic, and just kind of like let the feds sort of take the blame and take the heat. That's how Doug Ford governs. Seems as well. It seems as well, right? Many of what we're what we live through, though I know there's there's changes for federal travel laws today, but that's almost all they've been able to control is travel, how you cross the border, what you need to prove to to get from point A to B, uh, and and this is this was the issue, right? Right or wrong with the truckers anyway. Nearly every mm-hmm. other regulation we live under, Erica, is is provincially mandated. It's different exactly. rules in every single province across our country. Exactly, and policing's the same, right? Yeah. Um, like the places that have the RCMP um, as um, sort of like their their county police or their city police or the municipal police or whatever, that's contract policing. They have to contract the RCMP contracts that out, right? Otherwise, especially in Ontario where it has its own provincial police force, it should have stepped up to the plate. This should have been in Doug Ford court. What happened to Mister? L- I thought he was Mister Law and Order. What what happened? As soon as as soon as there's disorder, Doug Ford runs. I don't understand. Well, and and you saw what happened in Toronto. One day they were ready. Yeah. They barricaded yeah. Hospital Row. They had police yeah. out, uh, you know, on mass. There was a, it, it may as well have been the Raptors parade in the snow uh, and not a, a day when it's like 33 degrees and we don't get to see Kyle Lowry or Kawhi Leonard. But that but that was it. And then and then yeah. everyone's like the, anybody that was looking to cause trouble, anybody that was looking to to occupy Toronto thought, well, we're not going to be able to get crap. I was going to use another word done here. So back mm-hmm. up to Ottawa or back to somewhere else. And that's how yeah. that's how you run a city. That's how you do yeah. it. Well, you guys also had the benefit of a week of us. <laughs> I mean, you had foreshadowing. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you didn't do something, imagine what we were be saying about John Tory right now. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Listen, <laughs> and, and yeah, and we and we saw what we didn't want to be. Um, I want to mention the event you're doing tonight in a second for Oxfam, but I, I want to know where you weigh in on uh, on Ukraine, watching the coverage. Um, what, what's what, what's it doing for you? What's the, what's the media getting right? What do you want to see more of? What do you want to hear less of? How do you, how do you uh, how's it land for you? Uh, I see the drum beat for war is getting louder. <laughs> I mean, that's, listen, I, I'm not a fan of military intervention. This should surprise nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand. I will be honest with you. I don't understand the strategic interest. Like, especially since Ukraine is not a, a member of NATO. So what are we doing? And if there is a credible reason, so if you're saying we need to contain this man because he will, um, you know, cross over into Belarus or whoever the NATO members are, then make that argument. But right now, what I don't like about this government is that they do this wink, wink, you should trust us. They don't really tell us much and they don't tell us what the plan is. What is the plan? I didn't hear a plan. Did you hear a plan? You're t- you're talking about Canada with economic sanctions or, or giving them uh, giving them. I don't. I just goods? Canada in terms of this response 
to Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Are we going to stop his sanctions? We're sending, you know, we're getting like military ready. So uh, what's the plan? What's the plan? That's what I want to know. And I don't think that this government has communicated what the strategic interests are, what the plan Mm -hmm. is, and basically what the exit strategy is in various scenarios. I I haven't heard that. In fact, this government has done most of this kind of, you know, in the back room. And it's these back room politics that I'm not really into. So, for example, um, uh, it, it this like when the the Emergencies Act was announced mm-hmm. in the sandwiched in between was something about we're seven we're sending seven hundred million dollars to Ukraine or something seven hundred million dollars in support. I, I think it it was a package like weapons and so on and so forth. And then he went back to the Emergencies Act, and I thought that was cynical. I thought that was highly cynical that you are not going to talk to people straight and say, we're sending this. It looks like, you know, things are ramping up. It looks like Putin might invade Ukraine or something like that. No, you, you, you sandwich it in between a distraction. I mean, that's, that's, that to me is is a little bit too sly for my liking. Yeah, the timing. Well, and and I could go with the timing of uh, Monday. We have to have the Emergencies Act. We've got to vote on it. It's confidence vote. Exactly. We have to have. And then Wednesday afternoon, when it either looks like there's either public pressure that this that it won't pass through the Senate or the public or the polling's not right, or your caucus, which with there are three yeah. members that spoke up out about it. Um, two weeks ago, your caucus is getting really rattled. Your caucus that really didn't even want an election last September. Ah, um, Right? So it it gets a little restless. Is it me? Okay. I'm going to say this. I don't know if this is the case, but something tells me that he might be losing control of that caucus ever since this last election that, that nobody wanted. Right? Yeah. Yeah, And the thing is, and I say this because before that election, the liberals were incredibly disciplined, incredibly disciplined. No, not a hair out of place. Nobody spoke out of turn. Nothing. Now you, that you've had people break on the emergencies act. You have, you've had breaks on these vaccine mandates. You know, it just seems like, like there's a little bit of angst in that caucus. It's happening a lot more. It's happening yeah. a lot more. Yeah, um, they're, they're incredibly disciplined. If you've looked since 2015, well, except for, of course, <laughs> that little Jody Wilson-Raybould. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that minor kerfuffle uh, that was yeah, there. Yeah, that minor kerfuffle. Um, but, you know, the rest of them, the ones who stay in cabinet, are incredibly, you know, I don't know what kind of liberal wits they have, but, hey. Now it just seems that they're starting to speak out and speak their minds, and that's never yeah. a good sign for for leadership. I think the best way to put the war that's happening now in Ukraine is uh, how Mark Austin puts it. He's there in Ukraine for Sky News in London, and he writes this. The war here is basically this. On one side, Ukrainians, military and civilians, ready to lay down their lives to defend their free democratic country. On the other, Russian troops wondering why on earth they are here and at best half-hearted about what they are being told to do. And you can see that in some of the video. 
you see dudes standing in front of tanks and the tanks are like, can you move, please? Like they're not. This is not Tiananmen Square. This is not that. And uh, there's a ton of Russians who may have thought you're on a military exercise. I mean, you go where you get told when you're in the military and they weren't signing up uh, to kill their brother and sister neighbors. Not one bit. And you're seeing that to a great extent. So there is a little bit of an aspect, as I said earlier, in terms of uh, how bad do you want it and what are you willing to lay down? And there feels like there's an indifference among many of these uh, Russian troops. Uh, let's bring on uh, Professor Eric Cam from uh, X University. You know, I'm driving in the car yesterday to Vaughn and I hear you on the Roy Green show. And I'm like, I'm a huge Roy Green fan, but you only got like three and a half questions in. He's got it. He needs a longer segment. I know it's a national show. He needs more. He needs more Dr. Cam on the show. Well, far be it from me to tell Roy Green, who's a legend, how uh, to do his show. We I'm, throw that I'm, word around very casually. Let's be honest here. I mean, well, next you thing know you know, what? Kirk you, you, Cousins will be a legendary quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. Come on. Kirk Cousins isn't a legendary quarterback in the quarterback room in the Minnesota training room. But that's true. Uh, I would I would argue Roy is, you know, I, this term. I'd like to be a grandmaster in anything. I'd like to be a grandmaster of like my den. I, I just think this is a really cool term, but. Yeah, we were talking yesterday about the economic consequences of what's going on. And I, I think it's a, re a really good question. And I think that the um, on a macro level, what scares me the most, I mean, we can go into like these micro details of which commodities you're, you're going to see shortages and price rises. But on a macro level, when you look at this, what scares me the most are really the, the three things that I mentioned yesterday. Number one is just the supply chain, which is already stressed to the limit, mm -hmm. is going to be stressed even more with goods like, you know, wheat and, and, and things that come by uh, metals and natural gas and crude oil, things that come out, anything that comes out of Russia, you're going to choke off the supply chain even more. And that's terribly scary. Um, global unrest in general just makes financial markets melt down. Now, they have intended to do that yet, and that's a good sign. But, you know, this is this is still early days. And you kind of hope that this thing maybe remains in early days and they find a solution. But if it drags on, we know that the, the Fed and the states or the Bank of Canada here, they were thinking about raising rates to fight inflation. Well, now they're going, oh, geez, now we've got more global unrest. Can we still take that action so that, you know, there's going to be inflationary effects. And then just number three for me on a almost heartfelt note is, is this machine that we call an economy that's been stepped on and kicked on for the last 25 or 26 months of the pandemic. You know, it's just mm -hmm. starting to dig itself out. And now you throw this major, major uh, potentially warish conflict into it. And, you know, it's just there's only so much the economy can take not to not to give it like personal feelings, but there's only so much it can take. So, um, you know, I didn't want to sound too negative on Roy yesterday. And if there is a silver lining in this, and I hate to use that term because it's pretty ugly for everybody, is that we are not that exposed to Russia. I mean, yeah. they are not one of our great trading partners. So, you know, but but if you were in Turkey or you were in Egypt and you got 70 percent of your raw materials from from Russia, uh, Greg, it's it's pretty scary times. Well, it's Germany also doing an about face and saying Germany's got a massive economy. Russia's got the 11th biggest economy uh, in the world. And and so that that's not commensurate with their population, per se. And I know people say, well, it's a record low for the ruble. And it's by the way, it's crashing again right now. Um, but that's going to have a ripple effect uh, in in Eastern Europe, as you note. So far, 
early days, not much of an effect on North American markets. Um, unless you've got a ton of money invested in Russia, you don't have to stress right now. Yeah, I wouldn't buy Russian bail bonds right now, if that's your question. But yeah, that's right. And in general, we're pretty lucky. We have this buffer right now. And people have to remember that is that we, we use the term exposure. We are not terribly exposed to Russia. They are mm -hmm. not one of our major trading partners. When we teach students about exports and imports, we don't usually talk a lot about Russian commodities because that's not, you know, that's not our financial bread and butter. But, you know, economic uncertainty is never a good thing. It's never a positive thing with markets. And as soon as you have conflict, you know, the uncertainty starts to boil. And again, I think your point is exceptionally well taken. This is really early. So, you know, you can't just walk around now going, well, look, you know, they're fighting and it's not really having havoc on our markets. Well, yeah, sure. In the first week. But let's see what happens if this drags on. Let's see what happens in a month from now. God forbid, if we're still doing this, what the effect is on the economy. I mean, prices, prices can only go up so high. Consumers can only take such an increase in the general price level. And we know if you've you know gone to the gas station, the grocery store, you're already feeling the pinch. So what's going to happen when you feel the pinch even tighter is, is Greg, anyone's guess. Eric Ham is our guest professor uh, of economics at uh, X University, joining us on Toronto Today. The other thing is also is we've got this conflict. Now, I mentioned it off the top of the hour at six o'clock. I worked from home for four weeks while my wife was away for three and a half weeks. She got back late night Tuesday. I thought, let's go get back to the office. The show's better when I'm here and I like seeing faces. So that's me. That said, um, the amount of people, I'm really passionate about what I do. If people aren't passionate and they look at their own bank budget and they say, I don't know if I want to put gas in the car. I don't know if I want to repair that muffler or make that oil change in the next couple of weeks. It is a it, it's a grind. And when you look at gas prices, which won't go down as a result of this conflict, it's it's a big ask. I know there's people sitting on money that haven't spent it per se in the last 24 months that are waiting to and waiting to. But to your point, it, the more expensive things are. And if they think I'm getting a nice little bonus here by uh, by, you know, doing my work at home, it's going to be even harder to make that push back because they're going to point to the gas prices and say, that's the biggest reason I don't want back in the car. Yeah, you know, and to, I don't like to play the role of the contrarian because I'm sure there are people out there sitting on um, their disposable income and they haven't had a place to spend it, although I could give them a couple. Um, I actually think more that's a, an overrated statistic. I don't think there's just a ton of people, you know, these, these tens of thousands of people sitting with hundreds of thousands of dollars feeling like they, they now that's burning a hole in their pocket. I actually think there's more people um, that are, you know, one paycheck away from insolvency, as they say. So well, more, you know, more, more reason not to fill up the car, though, right? They may well, still have the, the same. Right. That's, exactly. You know, that you know, they say people respond to incentives and and this is the incentive right now. When you look at the gap, I mean, you can't go to the that's the problem, right? Yeah, something has to give my my lesson in the economy. There's two lessons I always tell my students. One, something has to give. And number two, what goes up must come down, which is a pretty good general life lesson. But if you go back to something's got to give, if you go to the grocery store, you can't not eat. You can't choose to not eat, but you can in some situations choose not to fill up the car or go on that vacation, or do many things. And so I do kind of sympathize, I do, I do sympathize with the people that say, but I can do my job from home. And then what they do, of course, is they bring up the philosophical argument that, well, maybe this is that inevitable change in work-life balance that I've been hearing about for 50 years in my sociology classes in university. So, you know, it's a, it, it is a tough call, but at the end of the day, 
and I, I'm no philosopher. Um, I think that um, not contrary to Barbara Streisand, people do need people. And organizations need the dynamic of people yeah. being around and talking and having both uh, direct and indirect conversations by the water cooler, because we know that that's where a lot of things happen. So do I think inevitably people are going to be working back in an office, um, maybe not 100 percent as they were, but maybe some breaking up of maybe 60, 40 or 80, 20? Yes, I do. But but I think, again, your point is exceptionally well taken when you we just we're just economic animals and we see the evidence and we see the motivations and we go, you know what? Right now, if I don't have to fill up my car, if I'm one paycheck away from insolvency, maybe I just don't, Greg. I want to get back to some things maybe coming in the fall or, or later uh, this semester, either at, at your uh, university or others. But you, like you've been waiting to travel, right? You've been waiting to you've had lots of uh, salt talks like Nixon Khrushchev esque salt talks with your uh, with your family about where and when to travel. I have also because we've talked about this having teenagers. It's a finite amount of time. There's that four or five year window where they don't want you anywhere around them in public. And uh, and th- then they they come back. They always come back. I came back to my parents. That's for sure. When I was about 20 or so, but from 15 on, I wouldn't have wanted to go on a long plane ride with them. And many parents are saying, I want to act now, but they've been waiting and waiting. The PCR test even getting dropped today is more of an encouragement for people to go and not spend 800 bucks on, on worthless tests. Uh, worthless. Let me tell you, my, my daughter had occasion to go for four days to the Barbados last week and it cost me four hundred dollars in pcr testing make her her work that off with some yard work and dishes and stuff come on yeah you do that with your boys too i'll have them meet in the yard one of them can bring a show anyway no but the point is you know what you're doing when you do that is you're just you're just taxing right you're just taxing vacations and you're just taxing people and providing again more incentives not to travel. You're right about this travel issue. My daughter, who's almost 18, has already said that if she comes away with us, she wants to bring a friend because what is she going to do with her eight year old brother <laughs> and, and two parents? And so, yeah, it's a really it's kind of that that right now it's the fine line. This is the sweet spot. If we don't go away now, if you don't make the memories now, when are you going to make them? Because she's going to be off to university soon, may or may not decide to travel with us. Um, so in, and then you mentioned, you know, the role we play in my house. I like this, uh, this uh, Vitaly Klitschko kind of thing. I like that, you know, he was tough. He was a fighter and now he, he runs a city. So I try to play that role, you know, the tough but loving kind of uh, kind of role in my house. But no, it's 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 hard. And people do want to travel. And, you know, I've heard people that are a little bit low in disposable income say, you know, what a problem to have. You want to travel and it's difficult and it's this, it's that. Mm. Yeah, but you got to put yourself in, into our shoes, which is, and you've brought it up a lot. You only have so much quality time with your children when they're children and you don't get it back. And I think that is one of the real human costs of the COVID uh, pandemic. I, I haven't been able to relate to parents who have like a three or four year old. I have, but but not in this era. But I listen and I'm empathetic. I want them to be equally empathetic uh, to to my uh, you know needs and my urgency and my ability uh, to judge my own risk as a uh, as a triple vaccinated person. That's that's where I want to end on. I got about uh, a minute, a little bit more to do it. Where we're headed, um, we had Stephen Del Duke on a couple weeks ago. The Liberal Party seems to have moved away from the idea of mandated boosters. Not many logical people are suggesting. Um, remember, gosh, we were even talking about the vaccine tax that the premier of Quebec was putting in. We're talking about taxing unvaccinated people. It feels like the conversation has gone a full 180 
What's your expectation for the fall for in-person learning for uh, any sort of vaccine mandate? Do you think you might be standing there in a lecture hall next fall teaching people that you don't know the vaccine status of? Yes, I do. And Mm -hmm. I could care less. It is over. Um, I don't want to sound like the premier, but in some sense, the passports, the whole business, it is coming to an end. This is the off ramp that my friend Greg Brady has been talking about for months. When we get back in September, people are back in the lecture hall. They are back in the labs. They are back doing what universities do best, which is putting people in a room and thinking. And while it's not always a garden party, that is where people are meant to be. You do not do your best teaching and learning on Zoom. It's been great. Thank you, Zoom, for getting us over the hump. But in September, the lecture halls will be filled. Professors will be there. Students will be there. Mm -hmm. And thank God we'll get back to some sense of normalcy. Love love our chats. Great hearing you on Roy's show yesterday. Uh, Eric, thanks very much for making the time today. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I'm a big fan of yours. Too. Oh, Stay please. You know, uh, it's I'm, I'm hit and miss just like anything else. Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. I hope you had a good weekend. What uh, what did you get up to? Did you could you tear yourself away from uh, the Ukrainian coverage? I forced myself to. Yes, I did. I mean, I was addicted to it. It was there was so much going on this weekend. But yeah, I did manage to get outside, you know, spend some time with the kids, um, watch some Netflix just try to you know have a sense of normalcy around the house so it was a great weekend mm. well what did you you noticed as well the uh the Zelensky thing this guy's become a real uh so here's the thing. real folk hero he is incredible so I've been watching him I've been watching the videos he's been posting from Ukraine live not live but I mean just of him in mm-hmm. the middle of everything and I'm thinking who is this guy so I sort of did a deep dive into who I wanted to know more about him First of all, he looks so young. So, yes, he's 44 years old. And I just found out so much about him. Did you know that his great-grandfather and his great-grandfather's three brothers were all murdered in the Holocaust? Which I I didn't know that. Did you know I didn't know that? that. No. Yes, they were. He's Jewish, right? Yes, he's Jewish. He's Jewish. And he, he actually went to school and he earned a law degree. And um, he never followed through with that. He So he earned his law degree. He became a comedian. And he was on... I think the number one, one of the number one top shows in the Ukraine at the time. Uh, and he played the president of Ukraine in the show for many years. Isn't that <laughs> so funny? this is like Martin Sheen becoming president if he was much younger, <laughs> coming right off the West Wing. But although people knew who he was by that point in time. Well, I think that's pretty cool. And the, the show is called Servant of the People. Oh. So now he played that. He was hugely popular. Then in 2019, he became the president. And what I find, I mean, I love that. The U.S. is offering to airlift him out of Ukraine, and he's saying, no, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. I need help. Help me in this way. So I just I just think he's I think he's really cool. <laughs> I think but I think people are feeling that way. And uh, it's rather remarkable. This isn't just anybody you're standing up against either. Like like yes. given th- that Russian, uh, you know, the, the opposition leader right in Russia is still in jail right now. He was poisoned and recovered from being poisoned. Mm-hmm. So what reason does Zelensky have to think, you know, I like we all have plans to be like, oh, I want to be here in 12 months. I want to be here in 18 months. I don't know that Zelensky can make any long term. Like, I don't know how he knows he's going to be alive a year from now. Like, But he talks about that. He yes. Talks about that. He's so open about, you know, what he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. But this is a leader. 
This is what a leader looks like. He's not fleeing. He's not escaping. He's not taking his family and getting out of there. He is right there on the front lines, inspiring all of these other people to fight against this man. Yeah, the Atlantic uh, makes a good point um, about Afghanistan crumbling. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani boarded a helicopter out of Kabul the moment he heard a rumor yes. that the Taliban had entered the city. <laughs> and really, who could blame them? And I couldn't either. Here's a helicopter. Would you like to live? And you, your first instinct is probably, yes, that's my first instinct also. I get it. But that's not Zelensky's first instinct. It's not. No. no, which is pretty amazing. I just I think he's so inspiring. I think he's not only inspiring the Ukraine, Ukraine, but he's inspiring everyone globally. This is what leadership looks like. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, it's that's really, I think, tricky for other politicians, because if he becomes the so-called gold standard. And, and again, this is very exceptional, unusual circumstances because we are talking about it's not I think it's important to point out also it's not the first massive conflict when I was in university, like the Balkan War, right, and Serbia and Croatia and Yugoslavia basically imploding uh, and there was ethnic cleansing there um, and, and war crimes trials eventually there. So Europe's seen this in the last 30 years. We can't quite go back to World War II and say, well, that's the last time there was anything quite like this. I, I think that was kind of lost last week that the mid 90s had a ton of conflict in the Balkans. Yes. Yes, it did. It did. But what we're seeing now is, I mean, I think partly because of social media, we have so much yeah. more information of what's happening on the ground in real time or moments later. And people are posting so many things. There are so many people that you can reach out to in Ukraine. And just watching Zelensky and what he's doing, I just, I don't know. I think he's pretty amazing. I think he's very inspiring. And this is what leadership looks like. Um, and he knows. He knows he might be living on borrowed time right now. But that's just, that's not stopping him. What's the reaction if, um, if all of a sudden there's no Zelensky? Like, honestly, well, like what I, I don't think people could be more visceral in their anger towards uh, Putin and Russia. And as I said in the, in the at the top, this has real world consequences for anybody that lives in Russia, lives in fear. We're going to play audio a little later on from Brian Cox, right? Logan Roy from Succession, who accepted an award <laughs> last night. Best ensemble cast. But he was basically like there's Russian actors out there, actors and actresses. There are brothers and sisters and they can't say anything for fear no, that all can't. of a sudden they're going to. And we, you, Shiba, you and I talked about this during the, the Olympics in China. Like there is a remarkable amount of conflict around the world. And uh, and, you know, again, people have made this 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 uh, pivot to understanding this about Canada in the last week that. You're allowed to say a lot of things in Canada and nobody's going to make you, nobody's going to vanish you. Nobody's going to take you to a camp somewhere. Nobody's going to, you know, muzzle you and throw you in prison. Like we're bailing out. We're, we're giving bail to people. And I'm not saying we shouldn't to people that organized the trucker convoy and had a plan to get rid one way or another of Justin Trudeau. We're giving bail. We're bailing. We're giving $5,000. Sure, you can go on your own recognizance. Just come back for the trial in a few months if you don't mind. We're doing that <laughs> compared to other countries. This is a pretty, we won the lottery in terms of places to live. We did. We did. We did. We did. And I mean, it's it's interesting to see what's going to happen. We're all watching from a distance. Uh, we're lucky to live in Canada. And I don't know. I just, I, I think the Ukrainian president is just a phenomenal person and leader. Thanks very much for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow on the first day of March, no less. Between 5.30 and 9 a.m., you can hear it at 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app or obviously come back and get the best of the show right here where you're listening to us right now. And feel free to share this podcast, subscribe to it. 
uh, and review us as well. Every little bit of constructive criticism and compliments and criticism, but some compliments too, that helps our show. Thanks very much for listening.